and welcome to today's event on new genomic techniques where we're going to be asking what lies ahead. Welcome to all of you watching at home and to those of you here in the room. My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based here in Brussels and I'm coming at you live from the Euractiv studios in the heart of the EU quarter. Now today we're going to be talking about new genomic techniques, often abbreviated to NGTs, which have been developed over the past 20 years in many parts of the world, with some applications already in the market in some countries. Now up till now, NGTs here in the European Union have been covered by the EU's legislation on genetically modified organisms, GMOs. But in July, the European Commission proposed a new regulation on plants produced by certain genomic techniques as part of a package of legislative proposals to support the EU's farm-to-fork strategy and the biodiversity strategies. But the scientific and NGO communities are divided on this issue. Some welcome the Commission's new regulation proposal, believing it could be an important part of the EU's bioeconomy revolution. But others believe that there are considerable risks to NGTs, such as in the agricultural field, the unknown effects of wild relatives of crops, and the unintended release of new genetic traits into nature. Now, to examine these effects, the Alliance for Science has published a new research report on the potential economic losses to the European economy of non-adoption of NGTs and also looking at the effects. According to the report, the cost will run into the hundreds of billions of euros annually during the next decade, and we'll be hearing a little bit more about the report later. Now, today, we'll be focusing on the potential benefits and the potential risks of NGTs. What is the growth potential for the use of NGTs in agriculture? Could their use play a role in meeting the EU's climate targets? And what does the future hold for the Commission's NGT proposal as it works its way through the legislature? To discuss these issues, we have an excellent panel here with me on stage, who I'll, we'll introduce now. We have Klaus Berendt, who is Acting Director for Food Safety, Sustainability, and Innovation at the European Commission's Health Department. We have Garlic von Essen, Secretary General of the Industry Association Euroseeds. We have Thor Gunnar Kofid, Chair of the Seed Working Group at the Farmers Association Copa Kojeka. And we have Sheila Ochukboju, Director of the Alliance for Science. Unfortunately, uh, MEP Jessica Polfiard wasn't able to join us. She has another commitment. Now, you here in the audience will be able to ask your questions to the panelists using Slido. Whether you're joining us online or here in the room, you can scan the QR code that you see now on your screen. Uh, you can input your questions there. You can go ahead and start putting questions in now if you already know what you'd like to ask. I'll get them here on my tablet and I will put them to the panelists at the end of the discussion. So, um, uh, Klaus, I'd like to start with a question for you. I've been talking about the proposed regulation. What are the main elements of this proposal for plants, and what was the reasoning behind putting forward this proposal? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the name of my directorate is uh, Food Safety, Sustainability, and Innovation. So we clearly pursue the objective to ensure that food is safe, that it is produced in a sustainable way, but also enabling innovation uh, to happen and come to the market. So these are the main, the main objectives that are also behind this proposal, which is intended to contribute to the 
innovation sustainability objectives of the farm to fork strategy and the Green Deal. Um, it is based on the, uh, the scientific advice that we got from EFSA and, and other scientific bodies uh, that found that plants obtained by certain NGTs uh, can be equivalent to plants that are obtained by conventional uh, breeding or natural uh, crossing and have the same safety profile, but they can also contain changes that are more significant and therefore they are not comparable uh, to what could be obtained by conventional breeding. And that is why in our proposal we, um, we uh, suggest to uh, differentiate between two categories of plants obtained uh, by NGTs with distinct requirements and procedures to reach the market based on their differences in, in, uh, in safety profiles and different characteristics. For the one, the category one, which uh, are the ones that are deemed to be equivalent uh, to those obtained by conventional breeding, we propose a very simple verification procedure to establish that that is indeed a fact based on criteria, very objective criteria that we have set out in Annex 1 to the proposal. And uh, they are very objective in order to give predictability to the breeders, but also to, to simplify the work of the authorities that will do this verification. And if a plant is uh, confirmed to be within this category one, they will be treated in exactly the same way as uh, conventionally uh, bred uh, plants with no further need for risk assessment and no authorization requirement or traceability or labeling as uh, for uh, GMOs. However, uh, we will make clear uh, via labeling of the seeds that they have been obtained with NGTs and it will also be reflected in the category of plant varieties so that those who don't want to use these kind of uh, seeds will be able to do so. The second category will comprise uh, plants that contain more significant genetic modifications so that we do not believe could occur uh, in via conventional breeding or in nature. And for those, we maintain many of the requirements as in the GMO legislation, but adapted. In particular, the risk assessment can be adapted to the profile and the characteristics, so it's not a one-size-fits-all as we have uh, right now. Um, and we will also uh, allow uh, that uh, these uh, or we will require that they will be uh, traceable and also be labeled as GMOs throughout the supply chain, but give the possibility uh, to indicate for what purpose the genetic modification has been made, because that might also help to uh, increase consumer understanding if, for example, it is made clear that the gen genetic modification intends to make a plant uh, better cope with drought or use less pesticides, or bring other benefits to consumers, uh, for example, via, via less uh, gluten content in wheat, uh, to just, uh, just give an example. And there will also be some regulatory benefits uh, for those uh, breeders that work in that direction uh, via better advice uh, to, to uh, get their, put their dossiers together to obtain the authorization that will still be necessary. And then there are two common uh, features that I also want to mention uh, in the proposal. One is that uh, we uh, have proposed uh, to maintain the ban of the use of these plants in uh, organic production. And this uh, on demand of the main organization representing the organic, uh, the organic producers in Europe, uh, IFOAM. Um, and uh, we also propose to monitor when the plants finally arrive, uh, arrive on the market, any potential economic, environmental or societal uh, impacts so uh, that, we, that we will see whether there is a need to further fine-tune and adapt uh, in, in the future. Okay, thanks for walking us through that. Uh, Garlic, at Euroseeds, you've been asking for um, a dedicated 
piece of legislation in the EU. What would you say are the potential of NGTs, and what might be the opportunity cost if we don't have a legislative framework that can uh, allow the growth? Well, I think we can fairly say this is the next big thing in plant breeding worldwide. Uh, it is uh, a set of technologies because we're not talking one single one, we're talking many. Uh, and there are probably more to come as we move forward um, that allow us to achieve breeding objectives faster because we can work more targeted. Uh, we have better understanding of the biology of the species, of the genetics of the species, of the changes that we want to induce very exactly at a certain location in the genome. Uh, we know what the outcome of that will be and we can work more at the level of elite germplasm already. So we don't need to spend all the time that we normally have to spend to bring a new trait into a new plant variety, but then really over many generations make sure that we also maintain the rest of the genetics of that elite new variety uh, intact. So um, the potential is probably not even known yet. Um, what we can see if we look at uh, scientific uh, literature and, and publications, the technologies are being used for a very wide range of different traits. So uh, it is really, on the one hand, obviously um, environmental conditions, so drought, cold tolerance, and all these kind of things. Uh, there's a big concentration, obviously, on uh, pest and disease resistance. Um, obviously also because worldwide, not only in the European Union, uh, the use of pesticides is under pressure. So is that a tool that may help us uh, balance the loss of crop protection solutions that we traditionally had and that we now may actually replace with genetics? Um, so, But there's also a lot of work being done on clear-cut consumer traits, so things in relation to, to taste, digestibility, allergies, uh, as just mentioned. So um, th there is a very broad potential of these uh, technologies, for sure. And what's at risk? Uh, I mean, at risk is uh, simply the fact that we in Europe are still, uh, and have historically always been, a center of excellence in plant breeding. And we are also still a very leading sector worldwide in that area, plant breeding and seed production. So we are a truly global player. If our legislation in Europe, so basically on our home turf, starts to diverge massively from what we see happening in other parts of the world, we have an issue. Because we can't move our material around the world as we can do today. So we will start see segregation. Uh, segregation means loss of efficiency and speed. And in the long run, we may see relocation of investment, quite naturally. Uh, because, in, as I often have said, brains and genes are mobile. So we go where we find the best conditions. And therefore, I think there is a certain risk that in some areas we would lose our technology advance and our leading position. And we would also, I think, have it much more difficult to attract 
the new talent that we desperately need in our sector, as in many others, by the way, um, because where would these young people go, these young researchers that want to work with the latest technologies, if we don't offer them opportunities in Europe? So I think that's also an important uh, element to keep in mind. And we'll come back to the, the different uh, legislative situations around the world during the discussion a bit, including right next door in the UK with the pre precision breeding legislation. Uh, Thor, let's turn to you next. Uh, from the perspective of farmers and cooperatives, what difference are NGTs already making in agriculture worldwide, and what difference could they make here in Europe? The NGT is rather new in the world, so we haven't seen it yet. But we have seen it uh, also in Europe. But, uh, I'm sure that it is here in, in certain species. But uh, if you look at agriculture in Europe, we have a lot of poli political wishes for the farmers. We have the Green Deal. We have the sewer uh, discussion now in the parliament and all these things. We have to reduce the use of pesticides uh, a lot. Uh, a lot of these political wishes that are something the farmers just need to do. Just mention, uh, remember, remember one thing, farmer doesn't use pesticides for fun. They use it to produce more and to produce better quality of uh, product. And we have to remember one thing, these pesticides we are using today, they will be maybe banned in about 10 years or they will be not working any longer because our, the farming community's biggest problem is that the pesticides the nature are getting resistant to all the pesticides we're using. <coughs> and if we don't have any products to help us to produce what we are doing today, we can't produce that, that much any longer. So we need some other tools instead of these pesticides. It's, and it will come anyway in the next 10 years uh, period. So the only way we can do it, maybe for weeds we can use robots. We will do it. It will take 10, 15, 20 years to learn the farmers to invest in robots instead of other technology. Uh, but for for the fungi, we can't do we can't have a robot who is cleaning the leaves and the uh, of the p plants uh, for fungi. Uh, it's not possible. So we need to have better varieties. And uh, we have seen in some species there are uh, they are rather good, uh, rather uh, resistant to fungi. Uh, about the INGTs, we don't know. You can never detect it if if you uh, uh, work with this is falling under the proposal category one. So it is coming anyway, but the farmers will choose these varieties and they will do it because they need it, because else they can't produce what they, uh, what they need. And it's not a question, of course the farmers will maybe survive some of them, but, but, uh, and the market will buy the product everywhere, uh, somewhere else in the world. If we can't supply Europe, uh, the European farmers can't supply Europe, then they will, they will buy it probably in Africa uh, without any control at all. Uh, at all. Uh, and if the European food safety will lose, but the farmers, these who will be left, who will that be? If we talk about technology, it is the big farmers. It is the large farmers. It is farmers like me, who's, who have a lot of hundreds and thousands of hectares. But the other small farmers, they cannot afford to buy, buy technology. They can't afford to buy big sprayers. They can't, can't, can't afford to buy big robots. So. It will be the false small farmers who will lose this game. And it will be areas where you can't make large farming scale. They will be pressed in the market because they can't, uh, they can't survive, because the product is not available for the market. Because remember one thing, the supermarket, they only want to have good quality of 
of food, good quality of vegetables. Already today, about it doesn't matter about it as organic or conventional. When you make uh, vegetables, it needs to be the best quality, else they doesn't want it. So that's why we have a lot of waste in the uh, in the uh, vegetables uh, production because all these products who can't uh, reach the market, it is lost. We have to plow it down or destroy it. Uh, and what we can see now, it is as coming more and better varieties that we can have a lower loss in the production because they are more fungi resistant, they are better to, uh, to, to survive in a dry period than all these things. So all this climate change, we need to have varieties who can uh, support us to help us to produce in these uh, situations. So I see, uh, if I look at the future for the farmers, the only way, the first step, it is to have better seed. And uh, then we can come into the PM, but that's, uh, I will uh, wait for that. But to, uh, that farmers are sure that when they buy the seed, it is good quality of seed that he can supply the market with a good quality of product. And the market in the future, they need documentation. That's why we have the new PRM proposal where we have the documentation of the uh, of sustainability documentation of the seed that they can follow the sustainability documentation of the product. So it's a way what the future market is demanding. That's why we need the legislation now. Sheila, we know that the EU is often called the world's regulator because as the largest single market, when regulation is set here, it uh, affects the rest of the world. What are and will be the reverberation effects of the EU's policy on NGTs on the rest of the world, thinking particularly of the Global South? Yeah, thank you so much for that really great question, and thank you for this panel. We're so happy to have this moment to share this report, which we did together with Breakthrough Institute. And I know in the report we made an economic argument, a very strong economic argument, but I'm so glad that this panel took it immediately beyond that and made it about not just being competitive um, within your market, but also it's a global trend. This is, this is a global trend. There's, there's, no, there's a fourth industrial revolution. All these things are coming together, and we're on the cusp of that. Europe is not just the regulator, it is the world's regulator, and it very much affects what's grown in Africa, what choices African farmers and, and governments make in agricultural policy. But it also is kind of, um, it, it gives, uh, it, it's not just that it regulates, but it also, the innovations that come out of Europe, the thinking, the scientific community that supports the global south really helps us to move or accelerate. So some of the points that are made here, um, I, I, I just want to pick up on because they're, they're really close to my heart. The one about pesticides. So I, I trained in the UK when it was in Europe, and uh, I in, in that time, uh, 98 to 2000, I was in Oxford, and we were working on GMOs at the time. I was working on biopesticides because of this issue. We have to stop using so much pesticides. It's, we've known the toxic effects, and, um, and, and I was so glad to hear that farmers don't use pesticides because they, they, they like it. They, they use it because they have to, because 
they can only get the best products out there. And even in Africa, um, where you have uh, mostly smallholder farmers, when you go to any supermarket, the quality of produce that the supermarket demands is almost the quality of Europe. How? Without the inputs, without the pests. So the farmers are really suffering, spraying 10, 20 times in a season um, in order to, to get them the toxic effects because they don't have the, the, the protective gear and all of that. And then the residue um, that ends up in the final produce has its effect in, in the healthcare systems of Africa. So it's the baron, but when, when there is a, a strong anti-GMO sentiment as there is where we are largely based in, in Kenya, uh, where a ban on GMO was lifted by the new government and then immediately um, a, a whole slew of lit uh, litigants came up and it's now in court so the ban is now back in place. And, and one of the strongest arguments is, well, the technology was developed in Europe, and if they don't want it, why the hell should we have? Why are they developing things that, that and then you come and give it to us? It must be something terrible about it. And, and it's a very hard argument to find a counter to, because, yes, in Europe, Europe has the, uh, a first world privilege of being able to find alternatives, mechanization, robots, other things, and largely food secure. But in the global south, you have countries that really are not food secure, like Kenya. Uh, droughts are stopping, uh, are, are just devastating uh, maize crops. So we have pests, we have droughts, we have all kinds of climate, climatic stresses that really these NGTs give us a hope for the future. Because these NGTs, in terms of the technology, can be quickly taught to our scientists and those scientists can, can apply them to the actual problems in those countries very specifically. But we as Alliance for Science that are fighting a science communication war against misinformation, we find it very hard to, because our, our, our arguments are global, our conversations are global. So Europe is a big loud voice in that conversation. And although within Europe, the nuances are understood, outside the nuances are not understood, the category one, the category two. It's just that, no, it must be bad, they don't like it. And then the organic farmers in developing countries, they need the European market. So they, they're growing produce for a export and yet not able to grow produce to feed the large majority of the population. So Europe as a regulator, has to look at the impact of that regulation on sentiment, global sentiment around the world, and will it be an impediment to future technological advances there too? Let's talk about some of the concerns about NGTs that I mentioned at the beginning. Klaus, um, we know one of the concerns that people have raised is the unintended release of new genetic traits into nature, and that that wouldn't be controlled. That would be something uh, that would kind of take on a, a life of its own. Has the commission taken these concerns into account when devising its proposal? And what kind of feedback are you hearing um, from people who do have these concerns? Yeah, of course, these concerns have been voiced uh, loudly and clearly during the uh, extensive consultations that we did prior to uh, coming forward with our proposal. And again, uh, we, we, we rely on the scientific advice that we got from EFSA and the majority of organizations who have confirmed that on the one hand, 
and, and Gali said it, uh, NGTs are a very wide set of different uh, uh, tools that can be used. Some produce modifications that could also occur in nature. Others are capable of doing uh, a lot more. And that is why we propose to make this distinction. So for the ones where we, uh, based on the criteria, come to the conclusion that they are equivalent to those that could also be obtained by conventional breeding or naturally, there is no particular risk assessment. But for the others, indeed, uh, we still foresee a risk assessment as in the GMO legislation today to precisely avoid uh, that there would be the release into the environment of genes that then propagate uh, unintendedly. And uh, the specific point uh, that you were probably after, the unintentional genetic modifications, here EFSA has told us uh, very clearly that they might occur, yes, but the likelihood is lower than in, uh, in, in random mutagenesis, uh, mutagenesis, for example. So we are confident that uh, if they occur, uh, they are less frequent uh, than what we would expect from, uh, from uh, the conventional breeding, including the random mutagenesis. Mm. Uh, Thor, some of the concerned people are farmers uh, about NGTs. What are you hearing from your members? Um, is, it, is, it, uh, is there a split among uh, uh, farmers on this and in the agriculture sector in general? Uh, and for those that are concerned, how do they feel about the proposal? Actually, if we have 20 million farmers, we have 22 million opinions, so uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's difficult to say. But of course, we have uh, both kind of discussions. Uh, there's only one thing, if we turn the discussion around, and we had the, uh, we had the, uh, the NGTs today, and we want to introduce uh, the traditional breeding with radiation, with nuclear radiation, do you think that will be, would be possible? I don't think because in, uh, how we do it today, we make the we make the, make the breeding. We put some plant, some uh, a gene down in a cup, and you put a nuclear bomb down, and boom, and then you see what happened, and then you take the best thing of what uh, what was survived, and you uh, f further develop that. That is plant breeding until today. We have created a lot of good plants, and that way it takes a lot a lot time, and it is, uh, I have heard from garlic it is very expensive, but uh, it's another thing. But with these new techniques, you do, do exactly what you want in the genome from the plant itself. That's nothing new. Everything is in the plant today. And I think that most of the farmers, I will say more than 95% of the farmers, they are aware of that, of that because there's a difference on GMO where you, there's something man-made in the plant, and then when you work with the genes from the plant itself. And I think the proposal from the Commission is r uh, actually rather good because it makes a split in that. And the, the farmers, they understand too that uh, because they can see that what the problem in the future is. It is that uh, we can't have the good variety we actually want if we want to follow the, uh, the wish of the green, uh, green Deal. We can't follow it because we can't just stop uh, using these things that uh, they want to to stop in the, in the political, political level. It's not possible because we need to, at the first, to survive economically as a farmer, and the second, we need to uh, produce that we can, uh, that market demand. But the price is not increasing. Just take the organic. You talk about organic, we need to go up and 30%, uh, maybe 50% uh, organic. Never happened. Only one thing, because the farmers can't survive and the market will not pay for it. And we can, say it's not true, but it is reality now after 30 years we have had that. 
Some countries had, had increased up to 12% in my own country, 12%, back on 8%, because there's a new agenda today. And the farmers need to live. They need to have an income. And that's why the search for the best basic of a production, it is a good seed. And I think when you come ar uh, walk around and uh, travel around in Europe and meet farmers, they ask for these new breeding techniques, new varieties who can, uh, that they don't need to spray so much because there's also a, a large cost for the, for the farmers to use the pesticides. Uh, so can we get these new varieties? When are, are they coming? When can we change and when can we uh, uh, get the new better things and so I think that uh, m most of the farmers they look forward to have new, these new varieties but then to back to the organic also most of the organic production uh, last week I had a meeting with uh, some large uh, organic vegetable producers in, in uh, half of the countries in, uh, in Europe mainly in the north uh, but also in the south and uh, they produce, uh, in some countries, more than the half of the ve uh, organic vegetables. They all want to use MUT because they say one thing. If, if they come on the market and the conventional market have them, then the supermarket look, uh, supermarket look at the qualities of the product. And then they can't sell the product from uh, an organic because they can't reach it if, if they don't have the same varieties. And today, they have the same variety, they can use the same varieties today. So if they don't have that possi possibility in the future, they don't, they don't have a balanced uh, competition and they will need to change into conventional because they can't uh, use uh, NGT as organic. It, it is their opinion. Uh, I know the organic organization, they don't want it and they want to be uh, written out of the NGT proposal. I don't understand. Really, I don't understand, because they can take it in organic uh, regulation. So they, it's not uh, possible to use it there if they, if they are so afraid. They, then they take, can take it uh, by themselves. But if it is as the proposal is now, then if they want to use it one day, first they want to, uh, need to change organic regulations, then they have to lay on the knees on the, uh, for the industry, about they want to join them to change the, uh, the NGT legislation about five years or ten years. And then it will take a five, ten years decade, uh, period before it is changed again. Then they are dead. So I really don't understand organic. I'm organic farmers myself too. Sorry. I understand the other organic farmers. Um, Garlic, how is the seeds uh, sector responding to some of these concerns? And how do you feel about the proposal's separation about what needs risk assessment, what doesn't need risk assessment? Do you think it's the right approach or is it being too cautious? What I think it's fair to say, it is a rather conservative approach. Um, it's actually what the commission is even saying itself. Um, so it, it's, it's not a giant leap. Politically, it is, um, to make that clear. But uh, if we look at the science and what is being discussed also in other parts of the world, I think it's a very cautious first step. Uh, we're also only looking at very specific methods, not at all, but a selection of those. Um, we have a number of uh, conditionalities in the proposal, uh, not only the criteria, but also certain thresholds of changes. And so all in all, it's a very careful first step. 
However, what the proposal also contains is that option uh, for the Commission to suggest updates based on scientific progress, which I think is an important uh, element. If you, if you just look at the, at the current GMO legislation, which dates back to 2001 as far as basic principles is concerned, and actually that was only an update of something that was coming out of the early 90s. So it's a very old piece of legislation. But we're stuck with it. And we are still doing the same things today to a classical GMO, even though they have been grown on hundreds <laughs> of millions of hectares for 25 years by now, as if we have never seen one before. So that's not very clever. Um, so I think that is also a, an important improvement in this Commission's proposal, uh, to have an opportunity to update according to scientific progress. Um, if we look at the concerns, I think the, well, on the one hand, obviously we do understand concerns, um, but on the other hand, we also are very, very attached, let's say, to science and to measurable things. And we can very clearly say there is a broad scientific consensus worldwide. The technologies as such are not dangerous. The resulting products, if they are indeed um, nature-like, do not have a specific risk profile uh, associated with it that would differentiate them from what we have seen so far. A wheat will still be a wheat, and a tomato will still be a tomato. With a genetic change to improve a taste, improve a color, improve a resistance. But it will still be a tomato or a wheat. We are not talking about glowing things in the dark, no? Uh, no weird plants that we have never seen before. So I think that also starts to settle in. The discussion that we're having today in Europe around these technologies is a much more measured one um, in general uh, than what we have seen 25 years ago on GMOs. That some groups have not made that step and say, we are talking about something different today than we were talking about 25 years ago, is a pity. But if we really look closely, we can also see it's actually a rather small fringe group, both as regards scientific groups as well as regards nature conservation groups. Sheila, you mentioned that GMOs are a contentious subject in Africa, just as they are a contentious subject here. Despite its cautious approach and the, you know, the different categories, do you think that the proposal that it is making clear that NGTs are different than GMOs, is that important for the messaging globally to change people's understanding? Uh, it's important in one sense. <clears throat> and unhelpful in another. <laughs> it's, it's important because it gets people to understand the technology, um, and we do want people to understand the technology and not just focus on the products that come out in the market. It's unhelpful because given the gamut of issues that we have to face, we, will, we still need GMOs. I mean, the new, the, the new technologies are useful for certain crops, for certain, but in terms of the global south, we have a whole spectrum of, of challenges that require much more complex manipulation. So GMOs are an important part of our toolkit. Um, so it's so what I like to say, it's like you having a toolkit box in your car and saying, 
Uh, I'm just going to take out the spanner because I don't like the spanner, but I'll keep all the others. And you're probably fine for a while, and then one day you need a spanner, and then you know, you're know you sort of stuffed. That's it. You can't do anything. So we don't want, um, we, we like <laughs> the clarity on the nuances, but we don't want it to be um, this kind of binary good and bad, <clears throat> because then that still narrows our options scientifically. And I just wanted to come back <clears throat> on that really important point on it is great that the science will be updated. That's great at a political level and a scientific level. But really, on a basic science communication level, it takes so long to update people on anything. You know, it could take you 10 years to update people on misinformation. We're still dealing with the age-old case of the Seralini study, which, you know, thank God it's, it's, it's gone to court and all of that. But it's still being quoted on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, it's part of the court proceedings in Kenya right now. Um, and judges who don't know enough science think it's, you know, when the litigant presents it um, and, and the, other, the other lawyers don't have enough scientific understanding to say, no, this is discredited, then it goes to court as a scientific study and this is a live issue today. So the updates are necessary, but we have to work really hard to push back people's initial understanding of a technology. So, so whilst we like the nuances, we still have to have a bigger, bolder messaging in that Climate change is here. We need more options. We have a world to feed that is getting bigger and hungrier. Our farmers are seeing decreasing productivity and incomes. We need something new. And, and we need to make it that we need something new, guys. What can we do? Something has to give. Yeah, it's an interesting point that actually separating the NGTs from GMOs could send the message, now we're done with GMOs, now we're, we've moved on. Uh, whereas that's not necessarily the message that, that wants to be sent. Um, let's talk about how some of the other jurisdictions around the world have uh, regulated GMOs. Klaus, how much did the commission look at other jurisdictions globally? Uh, uh, how much of the work on this proposal was informed by previous experience? And in particular, so we have the, the um, precision breeding uh, law in the UK, which I, as I understand it is a different approach because it's taking both animals and plants. Um, how, how has that informed the Commission's proposal? And it's a very close jurisdiction, obviously. Future of trade between the two is still a bit uncertain. But um, how would, this, this could be one of the big areas of so-called divergence, post-Brexit divergence that we have. How difficult would it be if the UK has a very different regulatory framework on this? Well, it's, it's a standard practice when we do the impact assessments that, pre that accompany uh, our proposals that we look at what's happening in other parts of the world. And we've done that also uh, here. Um, and indeed, uh, we noticed that various non-EU countries have already adapted or are in the process of adapting. And at the time we did the impact assessment, the UK was in the process of, it wasn't uh, done, uh, their legislation in order to specifically address NGTs. And we have here in particular, other than the UK, the US, Canada, Japan, Argentina, Australia, and India, for example. And um, so far, many of them also considered uh, NGT organisms and their products as GMOs uh, um, uh, or novel foods, and uh, they uh, have opened the rules there, some also deciding that they are to be considered uh, uh, comparable to conventional, uh, so a bit 
along the lines that we have eventually also proposed for our category uh, one. Um, and uh, some have completely exempted uh, them from any obligations. Some have partially exempted them from the GMO legislation that they had. So again, a bit, uh, as, uh, to come back to what something that Sheila said, it's a bit of a, a nuanced approach. There is, it's by far not everywhere that there is a general uh, black and white decision. Uh, these are no longer GMOs at all. It, it's often also case by case. Partial requirements remain, partially not, et cetera, et cetera, including for traceability and labeling. So. Uh, that has certainly informed also our proposal, um, and uh, Garlish said it very, maybe very correctly. It is an it is an important step. Is it as far and as bold as some would have wanted? Probably not. But then again, as I said in the beginning, we also have quite some stakeholders, whether they are fringe, as Tor says, or not, who are who are, who were opposing any change at all. So uh, we still believe that uh, our proposal reflects this plethora of views and this polarization that is around this uh, subject very strongly. And uh, yeah, indeed, it is, a, it, is an, it is an occasion, and I take Gary's po point after a very long time, to make a significant uh, change in this area compared to what we have uh, until today. Um, Garlic, how... When, when you guys are looking at the different regulatory regimes, how do you rate the EU proposal compared to US, Australia, Japan, UK, all of these alternatives? So one to 10 or one to <laughs> six? No, it, it's, it, well, I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, as I said, it's, it's not as bold uh, as some other uh, approaches that we have seen. Um, it is a, a complex procedure, um, even though we do see clear criteria that are being defined. Um, we may disagree with the one or the other element, but in principle, what we would expect as an outcome in the end is a more or less clear uh, set of criteria according to which a competent authority will assess whether or not a certain plant with a certain change in its genome is comparable to something that we have already seen before. So that is a science-based approach. Um, what we do see is that that element is something that is pretty standard in many of the approaches in other parts of the world as well. Um, so this case-by-case having a closer look, understanding what has been done. Uh, is that a fundamental change in comparison to what we are used to or not? And based on that, subjecting uh, the respective product to the one or other legislation. Because that is a point that I, I think uh, is important to make. There is no plant variety of whatever kind, agricultural, vegetable, any other, that is released to the EU market today that is not regulated. And also, if the Commission proposal would be adopted, any future plant variety on the market will be regulated. It will have to go through the regular authorization and marketing legislation procedure of the European Union, which is fairly extensive. The NGT proposal is 50 pages. 
The proposal on the new plant reductive material legislation is including annexes 150 pages and will be complemented by hundreds of more on technical protocols. So it's not as if we are exempting plants from legislation or regulation. That is not the case. Will never be the case in the European Union and we, the European plant breeding community, would actually be the first one to object to that. We are quite happy with the legislation that we have today for plant products and for that element of a clear authorization procedure, quality standards and requirements that any plant variety needs to go through. What we see is that NGTs are a tool to bring us better products that we can bring to market more quickly than in the past. So it's an element, it's an additional tool. It's not the tool, it's not the solution, but it's a game changer as regards what we can do and how fast we can do it. Well, let's take some questions from the audience. Again, you can put your questions in on Slido. They'll come up here to my little tablet. Uh, first question is for Thor. Uh, this question is from Julie, who uh, took issue with saying that you know, NGTs are maybe the only or one of the only ways to avoid pesticide use. So she says, uh, NGTs are not the only solution to pesticides replacements. Farmers could change their practices, for example, going for agroecology. So why not push for system change in that sense instead of NGTs? <clears throat> there are many ways that farmers can change their production. There's only one way to survive. It is that he can sell his product and he can earn money on his production. And of course, uh, I think uh, in all countries in Europe, uh, research institutes and everything are trying to find other ways or better ways for the farmers to produce. It can be vegetables, it can be animals, it can be plant production in the field, uh, field production and everything. We try to do it better every year and try to do new, learn new things uh, and take it into our farms every year. So we do it, but we know <coughs> from many years of experience how to change things and how to we take new, uh, these new things, how we can implement things. And only a few of these new things are actually being used after five, ten years because it, it shows that it didn't work. So it's only a few things that survive in the agricultural production. Um, and when we talk about this agri, uh, eco, uh, organic and all these other uh, reproductive farming and, uh, and all these uh, words. Yes, but actually there's nothing new in it. Most of it, we have done it in decades. And so, uh, mo most of these things we have, go uh, we have left it because it didn't work. Because we can have all these good things to know uh, uh, how to produce on a farm. Uh, we can read that, uh, read about in the newspaper that uh, organizations talk about it. Yes, they don't have to live of it. We have to live of the production, and that's a change. And look at uh, if you push in this direction, in the political direction. The only thing what will happen it is that these farmers who try, they can't afford to, to survive. A lot of them die out; they go bankrupt, and then the, the land is taken over by some larger farms. It is what is happening very fast out in, a, in Europe at the moment. All these things that you believe can change the world in a green direction, um, it is not actually a way that the farmers can live. 
So it's very important in the policy, also the Green Deal and everything, that it is going in, uh, that it takes time to convert. Farmers need to learn to change, it is one thing, and then he needs to have the money to invest in a new way of uh, doing it. But that's why the new breeding techniques, the new seeds, the good quality of seeds, it is a first step. Because if you don't have a good seed who can give a higher yield with a lower input, then you have a lower income. You need to have the best seed uh, to, with a lower input uh, to have a good income. And uh, so it's an easiest step to get the farmers to survive and also the small farmers to survive. It is that they have a better, better seed. About they use which kind of breeding techniques, the farmers doesn't care. They only need the good seed. And the last thing, it is that it is tested seed. Because there are many people that believe that if it is just a kind of seed, an old variety, and a local variety, or whatever they talk about, then it is good, it is better for the nature and all these things. But all these things, all these seeds, all these varieties they talk about, it is varieties who was uh, bred it back uh, before the Second World War, it is materials whose was old fa uh, we we left it on that time, and we see all these things. They produce it in some ways. They some farmers have a living of it. It is good, but it's not the future for the farming. It is not the future for the food production. It is to have the best yield per hectare, and it is with the lowest in input. And the basic for that it is to have the best seed. Sheila, what about in Africa? Are these changes in farming practices, such as agroecology, um, why not pursue that instead of NGTs? Yeah, this is uh, one of the biggest arguments we have there. And generally, it's from a very vocal minority who romanticize farming and agriculture. And really, thank you for saying that these techniques are not new and were, and were not propagated by the farmers because they didn't work, they didn't increase productivity, they were expensive, and the traditional varieties had very low yields. And the farmer is quite clear, so they tried these methods. So there is a way of um, this false dichotomy of natural against non-natural and a romanticization of a way of doing things, not knowing the cost of a system's change. It, and it, it does just come down to give us better inputs, cheaper, uh, more reliable inputs, and then and then we can do more. Because if if these techniques, um, agroecological techniques, um, were so efficient, we would have had the green revolution in Africa, which we didn't have using those techniques. And most of our farmers are are on, on very small smallholder farmers with very few inputs. Um, so there. There isn't a, there are not so many large producers um, using these unnatural techniques. So uh, whilst I'm not saying that there is no place for agroecology and there's no place for traditional systems, there will always be place for all kinds of ways of doing things. But in terms of uh, increasing the productivity that we need to get to a food secure future, um, this is not gonna work for us in the short time that we have left given, given our climate impacts. And I just wanted to say one last thing. 
we really strongly advocate for regulation. We love regulation. We, we support um, national biosafety uh, agencies across the global south because it's safer. It helps, it helps the public to believe more in the technology and the products that there is a regulatory framework, there, there, you know, the risk is reduced and people understand it. So it's not that, um, we, at no point are we advocating for less regulation. We're advocating for biosafety practices and regulations that make sense, that people understand, and that also can give, at the end of the day, the farmer a livelihood. Okay, next question is for Klaus. Uh, this question is from Corrado Finardi. In the current draft proposal, there are no clear provisions for regulatory coherence and harmonization between the EU and third export countries or contingency plans in the case of differentiated NGT status. This is indeed key to preserve food security. Uh, Corrado is from Coserel. Uh, so we, we talked about different regulatory regimes for uh, actually regulating it, but what about if you have differences from export countries into the EU? Well, whoever exports to us um, needs to respect our rules. So that's the case today, and it will remain the case in the future. That's also for the transgenic GMOs at the moment. I mean, uh, the marketing is only possible uh, if uh, an authorization is obtained uh, following the requirements of the regulation, and it will be the same uh, for these, uh, we have uh, the, the, the rules are not only for the cultivation in the EU, but also for the placing on the market of uh, products obtained from plants that have been produced by NGTs in, in third countries. And the request, uh, uh, we cannot write in our own regulations that we mandatorily have to align with regulations of third countries. I mean, that's not done anywhere and it will not fly. I mean, we, de we decide for our territory which rules we want to apply, just as third countries apply for their territories, uh, territories uh, which rules they want to apply. So I find the question a bit bizarre, I must, uh, I must uh, say, but maybe I misunderstood it. Okay, let's take the uh, next question for Sheila. So this question is, we have a couple questions here about climate effects, yeah? yeah. So the, the potential benefits to yeah. fighting climate change. Could you cite some examples of NGT-based crops and animals that could be part of carbon farming? For example, crops with bigger roots to increase the carbon sink in soil, or with higher nitrogen use efficiency, or cattle with lower methane emissions. What are some of the possibilities there? Well, I feel that those are the, those are <laughs> the examples, precisely those. And um, for countries um, like Kenya, where the staple crop is maize, we're looking at uh, teller and wema maize, um, which is drought tolerant and uses less water. All of those things, um, they, they make a, 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 a lot, a, a lot, they have a lot of impact. For countries that are, uh, the weather patterns have changed so dramatically that uh, because of climate change, of which African continent contributes the least and suffers the worst effects. So we are advocating for NGTs not just to develop crop varieties and products in crops and in live, uh, with livestock, et cetera, in, in the global south. It's also important that Europe and the global north looks at reducing emissions through uh, different um, NGTs that are useful for uh, li in livestock production because of um, uh, carbon emissions. Because of the, we live on in one planet, and so if if um, 
the regulation drives uh, practices towards uh, lowering emissions using by applying different NGTs in the global north, then it benefits us because it benefits the world. And also, um, when you're looking at uh, some of the drivers of climate change, deforestation, uh, greater land use, it's mostly because our productivity is low. Um, and so, uh, because our productivity is low, we need, to, we need more land and, and we, need, we don't have the efficiencies of better seeds. So when the soil becomes unproductive, um, more forest is chopped down to get a fresh so these, these are, NGTs are going to really make a difference, not just in the global south, but the global north, uh, by applying them, also reduces the, the impact of climate change to the global south. So it's, it's important. Okay, we also have another climate-related question, this one about adaptation to the effects of climate change. It's a question for Garlic. Uh, so the question is from Awana Dima. Based on the current NGT proposal, how do you and plant breeders envisage more complex traits like drought resistance or, as just mentioned by the commission, uh, the gluten-free wheat? Uh, will breeders focus on these traits? Are these traits interesting to uh, breeders? And then also uh, uh, they ask um, to Thor, same question, if it's interesting to farmers. Uh, so garlic first. For sure, interesting to breeders. Why? Because interesting to farmers, mm -hmm. to our customers. So the, the challenges uh, in relation to climate change are obvious. Um, I think the, the first principal statement is climate change is here to stay for quite many years, even if we would implement the entire Green Deal tomorrow and start having effects. It, will take decades until we mitigate it successfully and start maybe turning the tides. Meaning we will have a foreseeable future where we will need to deal with more extreme weather scenarios, more volatile weather uh, patterns. So obviously that's a specific challenge for our farmers, for our customers. So that is a clear focus for um, for breeding. What we also know, of course, is that some of these traits are awfully complex, to say the least. Um, and that, I think, is the, the, the point that we're making with the Commission proposal, being relatively conservative. Um, for some of the species, in particular some of those that are very relevant for Europe, our biggest crop is wheat both as regards productivity but also as regards acreage, which is highly complex uh, as far as its genetics is concerned. And the limitations of the Commission proposal as regards the overall changes that we could make and still benefit from the slightly more um, uh, measured uh, regulatory approach, well, that will make it, will make it very difficult to, to successfully address these complex traits. So if we could do more, that would be better. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but I think these two elements, adaptation to climate change on the one hand, and related to it but not completely linked, is everything in relation to disease resistance, etc., meaning to the loss of other possibilities uh, of uh, crop protection. These two are probably the first big drivers. 
then we have other trades, like we have talked about the, the, the gluten-free, etc., uh, which are really very consumer-focused, which, as we again know, are complex. Um, but these, I think, are the three, but probably the first two that I mentioned, that's where I see the biggest drive currently, also internationally, if we look at uh, what is being published, uh, what kind of research results we're getting. Uh, so it seems that that is really the focus of, uh, of attention. Thor, are these things interest to farmers as well? I will say it another, <clears throat> in another way. Climate change, it is something everybody talks about, but the farmers feel it mm. on the income, on the life, because they live there, they live out there. You've seen the spring in almost all Europe this year. It, we, we had a drought period. And all, I will say, 80% of these farmers who was living in these areas, they feel it a lot on their income. They have a lot of questions. When do we have varieties who are more drought, drought resistant? It is all of them. It doesn't, about, about, it doesn't matter about it as organic or conventional. All farmers ask about drought resistance crop. Then later on, we had a lot of rain, flush, then it's flush away. Then they want to have plants who have a better root system who can keep the soil there and stand there and be ready uh, when the uh, when the, uh, uh, the crop is ready for harvest. And the third thing is, when you have a two months, three months uh, drought period, and the, if the plants survive, then it misses these two, three months <coughs> of growing season. So the last period it is before it needs to harvest, because it is, we have the, the year, it is only the summer period where we, where we have sunshine hours enough to make the uh, photosynthesis. And then, um, so, the plant must be ready to to uh, to produce that what they missed in the first three months in the next uh, two three uh, maybe one and a half two months. So it is a complete other way that uh, the plant need to grow. So we need to have these plants ready, and the farmers ask for them now. When we have the come on, adopt a proposal uh, from the commission. Let us get the uh, NGOs, and you see the face when we say, okay, if we adopt a proposal now. We will have the first NGT variety who can't meet your wishes, but uh, the first NGT variety, so we will have it in 2027-28. And with your wishes about drought tolerance, we will maybe have it in 2000, I don't know, uh, 35. Look at the IPCC's map over Europe in 2035. Then we don't, don't talk about desertification only in Africa, it is also in Europe. Spain, south of France, and everything. It is a map made of the Commission. And uh, if we need to listen to these maps or look at these maps, then we need to have these plants available at that time, else we can't feed the society. Well, Klaus, we've had three questions come in that I'll group together because they're similar. They're about differentiation and enforcement or enforceability. Uh, first question from Federico Pisani. In order to address the concerns over genetically modified traits spreading in nature and products being mislabeled under the wrong category, what type of genetic control and surveillance system is being envisaged? Who will be in charge of the checks and with what budget? Similar question from Luis uh, Guimaret. 
uh, from replanets. How can category one and category two seeds be effectively distinguished? And similar question, but about imports dev, uh, from Devo. How will the EU control the import of uh, GE products when it is difficult, if almost impossible, to identify them? Yeah, I mean, the, the detec detectability uh, is indeed uh, an, an, an issue. I mean, normally, uh, what, what uh, or for all EU legislation, the member states have to monitor, of course, compliance with the requirements. We are the appropriate authorities, um, and uh, we support that, the Commission support that. We are a network of uh, reference laboratories that uh, develop methods, and they have indeed confirmed that while it is possible to detect genetic modifications, I mean, there is, uh, I think, no, no question about that, it is often not possible uh, for those uh, to, to determine whether they have been obtained via an NGT method or through condition, uh, conventional uh, breeding or uh, naturally. And that is indeed a, a challenge for enforcement, um, if, uh, in particular for controlling then uh, imports, because if the importer doesn't declare that uh, the modification uh, has been made with NGTs and it's not possible to detect it analytically, then of course uh, the authorities are in a, in a bad position. But also here, I mean, developments are ongoing and there is work ongoing to constantly uh, develop better methods, uh, more precise methods, uh, and the reference laboratory network is on that for NGTs just as for other areas, if you look at contaminants or, or pesticides uh, residues. But yes, at the moment, uh, it is not possible for some of these modifications to determine with certainty whether they have been obtained with an NGT or uh, via uh, other methods of breeding. That said, we also know that, uh, at least the information available, that there is not yet, and Tor also said it, there is not yet large-scale production of uh, NGT uh, plants in third countries, uh, so that there would be massive streams of imports already arriving unknown uh, at our doors. I mean, that's not the, the situation uh, at all. Okay, next question is for Garlic. Uh, this question is from Julia. What about the patent issue? The EU breeding community is made up of a lot of SME-sized breeders, particularly in Germany. If the patent issue is not regulated, it will lead to a loss of these businesses and support the big companies and disadvantages for farmers. Uh, so does, does, is there a risk here that we end up uh, prioritizing or benefiting big breeding companies rather than small ones? It's, a, it's, it's an important discussion and it's a very complex issue, but it's broader than NGTs. Um, what is the best possible system uh, that balances on the one hand um, proper intellectual property protection and with that incentivize research, remunerate um, those that have uh, yeah, brought us those new innovations um, and at the same time have a system that also makes sure that these innovations become accessible that they're being used and that the resulting products are actually benefiting then indeed uh, the broader society. So that discussion is a very principal one. We've always had the discussion both within the industry, between industry and farmers, with the research community, what about this patentability of certain biotechnological inventions? It's always been a very hot topic in, in Europe. And I think it's fair to say we have had that discussion since 19, I think, 98, when finally the first uh, European Patent Directive uh, came into force. Um, 
So at that time, we were not talking CRISPR. And still we have the debate. So I think what is new now is that people realize the potential of these new technologies, with that also the potential impact on the number of products that would come to market, and with that potentially also having maybe more patents in the future rather than less. And what kind of impact uh, could that have? I think what we can say clearly, or what I can say clearly for Euroseeds, uh, we have a strong interest to maintain a proper balanced system. Uh, we understand the need for IP protection, but we also really see the importance of assuring access to technology and including protected technology for and products for further breeding and, and, uh, and research to the benefit of society at large. Do we need to discuss this point? Yes. Is it urgent to discuss it? The urgency is a matter of perspective, probably. As Tor rightly said, we are not going to, even if the legislation comes tomorrow, or let's say by April, by the end of this parliamentary term, it will still take us years to get products through the other regulatory system, meaning the variety authorization system, before the first ones are going to hit the European market. And for all of that to spread out across the industry, across the different species, etc., it will take a few years more. So the impact of these technologies specifically on the number of <coughs> patents and that impact on the structure of the industry, of the relations between industry and farmers, etc., today, in all fairness, it's, I wouldn't say unpredictable, but it's definitely not clear. So we support the Commission's announcement uh, to have a study on that. We also feel it could maybe be a little bit more ambitious as regards the timetable for that study. But uh, we definitely look forward to contributing to this because it's an important element. But it's not an element that should create a yungtum for the authorization of such products. We mentioned the possibility of the legislation being adopted by April. That is the subject of the last question, which I'll put to you quickly here, Klaus. Uh, and it is about the future of this proposal. It's a tricky time legislatively because we're coming to the end of the term, which ends effectively in April. Uh, so Klaus, how confident are you that the member states will accept your proposal? And if the parliament only votes on the topic in February, how can there still be a trilogue compromise before the elections? Uh, was it Churchill who said, forecasts are notoriously difficult, in particular <laughs> they concern the future? Uh, what we see is uh, a lot of uh, ambition, both in the Council. I mean, the Spanish presidency has uh, scheduled, I don't know any other proposal for which so many uh, working group meetings have been scheduled in such a short time, and discussions have advanced a lot. And also the Parliament, and it's too bad that uh, the rapporteur couldn't be here today, uh, has, has put forward a very ambitious uh, schedule. So there is still time for uh, trilogues uh, between the institutions if the parliament determines its position in, in, in February. Um, but uh, how far they will be apart and how much time they need then to converge, that uh, is impossible uh, to forecast, at least from our perspective at this moment. And maybe uh, yeah, the rapporteur could have been in a better position to answer or somebody from the from the presidency. But the commission is, of course, as always, con collaborating as, as, as to its best to make the advances as fast as possible, so that indeed, as Garlich expressed the hope, uh, there could be a compromise before the end of the period. 
Will there be sufficient member states on board? Uh, that is also something that time will tell. Mm. And the parliament is a, a beast that is also very difficult to predict the future with. So we'll see how the next months go. I want to thank all the panelists for some really interesting insights. How about a round of applause for them? Certainly a hot topic to watch over the next months. This is one of the, uh, the key proposals as we get toward the end of the term that people are watching. Uh, thank you so much for watching us from home. I hope you enjoy the rest of your afternoon. And if you're here with us in the room, I invite you out for some networking and food just outside these doors. Thanks for watching and take care.